Okay, our next speaker is um, David Calibro. He received his PhD from, Near Eastern Lang uh, from the University of Chicago in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations. Um, he currently works as a research editor at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship, and he lives in Provo with his wife and darling six children. <laughs> During his lifetime, Joseph Smith revealed at least four versions of what I will refer to as the Genesis account, which consists of the creation of the world, the experiences of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and the events that befell them in their near posterity following the expulsion from the garden. These four versions each differ in important ways from the biblical text in Genesis, and they also differ one from another. The versions of the Genesis account include the following. Scattered references found in the Book of Mormon, the biblical account as revised by the Book of Moses, the account in the Book of Abraham, and the version presented in the Temple Endowment. In this presentation, I will focus on the second of these, the Book of Moses, especially chapters 1 through 7, which were revealed to Joseph Smith from June to December 1830. Many have already pointed out that temple-related themes that have uh, uh, that temple-related themes abound in these chapters. I will take these discoveries a step further, arguing that Moses 1 through 7 is fundamentally a ritual text whose elements are adapted to the physical features of the Temple of Solomon. I will then discuss how this reading of the Book of Moses might interact with modern scholarship on the biblical book of Genesis, and finally, how this reading of Moses can provide insight into ritual performances, both ancient and modern. Moses 1 through 7 includes five major sections, which can be outlined on the basis of the way they are recorded in the earliest manuscripts, their subsequent publication, and the internal flow of the narrative. These five sections are as follows. Moses 1. This chapter was originally recorded as a separate revelation entitled The Revelation Given to Joseph the Revelator, June 1830. It was also printed as an independent revelation in Times and Seasons in 1843. Moses 2 through 4, entitled in the earliest manuscript A Revelation Given to the Elders of the Church of Christ on the First Book of Moses. Uh, this section concludes with an aside to the audience very similar to the one at the end of Moses 1, ending with the word Amen. Moses 5. In the early manuscripts, this chapter began with a heading, a revelation concerning Adam after he had been driven out of the Garden of Eden. And then Moses 6. Although the transition from chapter 5 to 6 was unmarked in the earliest manuscript, the second manuscript sets off chapter 6 with a new heading, the genealogy from Adam to Enoch and the plan of salvation, etc. Like chapter 5, this chapter concludes with a short summary uh, and the word Amen. And then finally, Moses 7, printed as an independent revelation in the evening and morning star in 1832. Although the narrative continues into Moses 8 and beyond, chapters 1 through 7 represent a thematically coherent whole, and they can be understood as distinct in terms of overall structure from what follows. The first indication that Moses 1 through 7 is a ritual text is apparent when we pay close attention to frames of discourse and the ways in which they interact. 
A frame of discourse is basically a situation in which people communicate with each other. For example, Eve and the serpent communicate with each other in chapter 4, and this is a frame that exists within the narrative itself. There is also an all-inclusive frame in which the narrator communicates with us, the ones reading or hearing the narrative. Often, foundational religious narratives, like the Genesis account, become mythological precedents for rituals, adding authority to the ritual by showing that it had a powerful and ancient origin. An example of a mythological precedent is the institution of the sacrament in the New Testament Gospels. Note that the term mythological here does not mean that the account is fictional. Those who partake of the sacrament today do so in commemoration of that original event. When one participates in a ritual that has a mythological precedent, the frame of the original narrative and the frame of the ritual overlap. A number of passages in Moses 1 through 7 could be viewed as mythological precedents. Adam's offering of sacrifice, his baptism, and the ascent of Enoch could qualify in this regard. If Moses 1 through 7 is viewed as a ritual text, these passages could be understood as episodes narrated by a ritual leader in order to lend authority to similar actions performed in the ritual. The problem with appealing to the concept of mythological precedent is that it is difficult to prove, since the frame of a ritual leader reciting a narrative is no different from that of an ordinary narrator. However, what does provide evidence of a ritual context is lamination. This term, borrowed from the sociologist Irving Goffman, refers to instances where frames of discourse are overlapped in such a way that the narrator and or the audience becomes part of the narrative, with the result that the distinction between frames becomes blurred. All kinds of dramatic performances involve lamination. This technique is frequently employed in ritual because it imparts efficacy and also makes the ritual more exciting for the participants. When lamination occurs in a mythological narrative like the Book of Moses, this is a fairly certain indication of a ritual context. As we begin reading the Book of Moses, it seems like a recounting of an ancient event set within an ordinary narrative frame, although the ancient event is laden with temple-related symbolism. We read, the words of God, which he, gave, which he spake unto Moses at a time when Moses was caught up into an exceeding high mountain, and he saw God face to face, and he talked with him. By the way, all the quotes from Moses are here, here are taken from the, the earliest manuscript known today as OT1, Old Testament 1. <clears throat> However, when we get to the end of this chapter, the frames of discourse start to merge, and we find ourselves being included in the narrative frame. These words was spoken unto Moses in the mount, the name of which shall not be known among the children of men, and now they are also spoken unto you. Show them not unto any except them that believe. Amen. What existed in the narrative as an interaction between God and Moses therefore overlaps with the frame of discourse between the narrator and us. In the next section, the overlap turns into lamination as the narrator takes on the role of God. And I, the Lord, spake unto Moses, saying, And those are the words which I spake unto my servant Moses, and they are true, even as I will, and, not, and I have spoken them unto you. This is God speaking, I, the Lord, I, the Lord God, which I spake unto my servant Moses. Moses here is third person now. He's not you. He's he. 
Thus, at least by the time we reach Moses 4.1, the narrator plays the part of God, merging roles like an actor in a play that doubles as the narrator. This, in turn, implicitly links the audience with Moses, who talked with God face to face on the mountain. Previous commentaries, without providing any argumentation, state that the asides to the audience in Moses 1.42 and 4.32 are editorial insertions containing words that God spoke to Joseph Smith or to the elders of the church. This would certainly fit historically since the time when these passages were revealed was one of intense persecution following the publication of the Book of Mormon. And it would make sense to keep a revealed translation of the Bible out of public view at that stage. It is also noteworthy that Moses 1 was not published until the Nauvoo period, 1843 to be exact, when it was printed in the Times and Seasons, much later than the Book of Enoch, in fact, was published, or the Moses 7. However, unlike the headers that were added to the beginning of each section, the closing verses contain no explicit naming. The you in both cases is very ambiguous. This allows for the possibility that the closing verses are actually part of the revealed ancient text. Certain aspects of these passages suggest that this is indeed the case. Unlike the headers, the closing verses are not set off in any way from the preceding text. There are no parentheses like the ones in our modern edition. In both cases, the aside uh, forms a pair with the, verse, with the first verse of the section. The words of God which he spake unto Moses, these words was spoken unto Moses. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Moses, and those are the words which I spake unto my servant Moses. Therefore, in my opinion, it works best to interpret the first and last verse of each section as belonging to the revealed ancient text, while the header atop each section serves alone to set the text in the frame of the modern revelation itself. Instances of lamination also occur in the third and fourth sections of Moses. In the summary at the end of the third section, the preaching of the gospel is opened up to an audience beyond the inner frame of the narrative. And thus the gospel began to be preached from the beginning, being declared by holy angels, sent forth from the presence of God and by his own voice, and by the gift of the Holy Ghost. And thus all things were confirmed and the gospel preached and a decree sent forth that it should be in the world until the end thereof, and thus it was. Amen. The phrase in the world until the end thereof includes the audience in the scope of the narrative. Just as the gospel was preached anciently by God's own voice, according to this verse, the narrator here is speaking in the voice of God, preaching the gospel to the audience through the very recitation of the narrative. It's all overlapping and Distinctions are blurred. In the fourth section, the theme of father-son descent, dealt with throughout the chapter and mentioned in the header, is brought to bear on the initiation ritual of baptism in God's words to Adam, inasmuch as they were born into the world by the fall, which bringeth death, by water and blood and the spirit, which I have made, and so became of dust a living soul, even so ye must be born again of water and the spirit, and cleansed by blood, even the blood of mine only begotten, into the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Here the word mysteries, found in the original manuscript but later omitted, is certainly suggestive of, of a temple initiation. Having been baptized by water and fire, Adam is told the following. 
and thou art after the order of him who was without beginning of days or end of years, from all eternity to all eternity. Behold, thou art one in me, a son of God, and thus may all become my sons. Amen. Again, the phrase, and thus may all become my sons, draws the audience into the scope of the narrative. Provided that the audience receives baptism, they take on the role of Adam, becoming sons of God and receiving the priesthood as he did. In chapter 7, we return to a situation very much like that in chapter 1, in which distance is maintained between the narrative frame and the ritual frame. The whole of chapter 7 is presented as a simple recitation about past events. The audience appears only as an object of Enoch's vision in uh, verses 21 and 24, not as actors in the ritual. There would seem to be an implied message that the audience can follow in Enoch's footsteps and have its own heavenly ascent, but that is apparently left to another occasion. The middle three sections of the Book of Moses can be linked to architectural features of the Israelite temple. Drawing these links involves paying attention to movements described in the narrative, themes that are repeated within a section, and possible allusions or word plays involving architectural features. Chapters three to four, which include the Garden of Eden narrative, can be linked to the Heichal of the temple, the largest room, corresponding to the holy place of the Mosaic Tabernacle. Donald Perry and others have argued that the seven-branched menorah found in the Heichal corresponds to the Tree of Life. It is also possible that the location of the Tree of Life was understood to be within the Devere, or inner sanctum, a space that was usually barred from view even by the priests. The cherubim carved on the outer doors and those leading to the Devere correspond to those placed to guard the path to the tree of life when Adam was cast out of the garden. <coughs> Just as Adam was driven out of the garden eastward, the door leading from the holy place to the outdoor temple, to the outdoor temple court faces eastward. Chapter 5, which describes what Adam and Eve did after they were driven from the Garden of Eden, can be linked to the altar of sacrifice. In large part, this section revolves around the subject of sacrifice. Adam is commanded to offer sacrifice, begins doing so, and is taught about its significance as a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten. Cain and Abel engage in conflict, which begins over a difference in the manner of offering sacrifice. Cain brings the fruit of the ground at Satan's suggestion, while Abel brings the firstlings of his flock, gaining uh, the Lord's approval. This chapter also deals extensively with the gospel and its preaching, which logically relates to the sacrifice of Christ. Finally, Moses 6 can be linked to the giant laver in the temple court, known as the sea, Hebrew Yam, which sat on the backs of 12 oxen and was located immediately east of the temple. Close to the beginning of Moses 6, the faithful residue of the people moved to a land of promise called Canaan. In the middle of the chapter, Enoch mentions that he saw a vision as he journeyed from the land of Canaan by the sea east, perhaps an allusion to the sea or giant laver east of the temple. The culminating passages of this chapter deal with the subject of baptism. Enoch teaches the people about Adam's baptism, since a revelation, uh, relating a revelation in which Adam was taught about baptism and its relationship to the atonement. While there is no evidence that the temple laver was used as a baptismal font, it was definitely large enough to suggest such a use. 
and Joseph Smith's specifications for a temple baptismal font, modeled after the Solomonic laver, shows that he understood it in this connection. This linking of text to temple provides a unified way of understanding these chapters. However, so far, it is quite speculative. What makes it more convincing is narrative displacement. In two instances, events are displaced from their natural or chronological positions to later points in the narrative. This happens first when Adam and Eve are taught the law of sacrifice, only after they have been driven out of the garden. This complicates the giving of the commandment, since it has to be given from a distance. And they heard the voice of the Lord from the way towards the Garden of Eden, speaking unto them. And they saw him not, for they were shut out from his presence. And he gave unto them commandment that they should offer the firstlings of their flocks for an offering unto the Lord. Why did God not teach Adam and Eve the law of sacrifice when he gave them commandments before driving them out of the garden? This would seem to make sense to have it in that earlier place. In fact, Donald Perry has shown, again, that some traditions uh, have Adam and Eve being taught about sacrifice in the garden before being driven out, when the Lord slaughtered animals to make the coats of skins. However, the connection with temple architecture elucidates the logic of the sequence of events in the Book of Moses. The altar of sacrifice had to be outside in order to prevent blood and ash-laden smoke from polluting the more sacred indoor parts of the temple. Since the altar of sacrifice is the natural place for this part of the ritual, the ritual has to be displaced from its ideal place in the narrative and adapted to the indoor location of the altar, and the outdoor, excuse me, location of the altar. Uh, the second instance of narrative displacement involves the account of Adam's baptism. This account is not given as part of the story of Adam's redemption, at the beginning of Moses 5. Instead, it is put uh, in the mouth of Enoch several pages later. Its position in chapter 6 conforms to the setting of the ritual near the labor where instruction about baptism is appropriate. To what extent was Joseph Smith aware of the ancient connections in the texts he revealed? It is evident that by the Nauvoo period at the latest, Joseph Smith did understand the Genesis account that he had revealed as a ritual text relating to the ancient temple. The prophet's sermons during this period, along with the ordinances and architecture of the Nauvoo temple, which he orchestrated, suggest as much. Moreover, the evidence gathered by Jeff Bradshaw, and which he talked about earlier this morning, suggests that this understanding goes back even farther to the very beginnings of the Restoration. Whether Joseph Smith was aware of the specific connections that I have noted here, such as the placement of the altar and Enoch's allusion to the giant laver, is a different question that I am not prepared to answer. In any case, Joseph Smith ultimately interpreted the Genesis account in a way that was remarkable for that time, as a variable ritual text fundamentally linked to concrete ritual contexts of the past. This reading of the Book of Moses has implications for the biblical Book of Genesis, namely that it was once a protocol for a ritual enacted at the Israelite temple. How might this approach interact with modern biblical scholarship? There have been many studies that have suggested that ancient creation accounts, like the one in Genesis, function as scripts for ritual dramas. Such studies find support in cross-cultural comparison 
For example, with the Memphite theology from ancient Egypt and the Enuma Elish from ancient Mesopotamia. However, one has to go back several decades to find studies along these lines in mainstream biblical scholarship. Ever since Graf and Wellhausen developed the approach known as source criticism uh, at about the same time when Joseph Smith lived, this approach has exerted a tremendous influence in biblical scholarship. One of the features that source criticism explains well is the presence of what appear to be two creation narratives in the first two chapters of Genesis. This approach identifies a seam between the two narratives. On one side of the seam, God is called Elohim. He creates things in a certain order, and the verb bara, to create, is used. On the other side of the seam, the name Yahweh appears, and the creation occurs in a different order and with different verbs. This suggests that the two, creation, the two different uh, creation accounts uh, come from two different sources that have been put together in these chapters. This is not the place to launch an alternative theory to challenge source criticism. But I think the Book of Moses invites us to reconsider a ritual approach to the first chapters of Genesis. And on this limited scale, I think the invitation is very timely. The invitation involves at least two components. First, the Book of Moses uh, shows us uh, what to look for in a ritual text. Lamination of discourse frames, verbs of motion, repeated themes, and word plays that relate to temple architecture and narrative displacement. A full study of these features should be taken up elsewhere. For now, I will mention just one suggestive wordplay. In the account of Eve being taken from Adam's rib, in Genesis uh, 2, 21 to 22, the Hebrew word for rib, selah, is used, uh, is used. This word is also used for the side chambers of the Temple of Solomon in 1 Kings 6, 5 and 8. Indeed, Genesis 2.21 can be interpreted as a description of a ritual action. otav can be rendered either as he took one of his ribs or he took one female thing or person, so namely a woman, uh, from its or the temple's side chambers. The double meaning of tselah is reinforced by the use of the verb bana to build in the next verse. Literally, he built the rib or side chamber. Second, the book of Moses shows us what it, that what appear to be different sources may actually be different stages in a ritual, each with its own distinctive actors, action, and sequence adapted to a shifting ritual context. In Genesis 1, which focuses to a large extent on divine speech, the audience could be hearing the divine counsel ordering the work of creation. The placing of Adam in the garden at the beginning of Genesis 2 could correspond to a shift in location. Gesture now predominates over monologue and fiat, and the focus is now on divine action as it transpired on the ground, so to speak. The order of events does not match chapter 1, but it does fit the logic of the ritual. The audience is already there, for example, having become a ratified participant by being created and blessed at the end of chapter 1. So it makes sense for man to be the first one formed in chapter 2. Perhaps the most exciting challenge offered to us by the book of Moses is to see ritual with new eyes. The same things that we look for in a potential ritual text like Genesis 1 to 3, such as lamination and narrative displacement, can be discerned in rituals. 
This includes ancient rituals found in texts and iconography, as well as our own gospel ordinances. Joseph Smith's revelations imply that some things were done differently in past dispensations, yet there were also some absolutes. Joseph Smith taught the following. Now the purpose in himself, in, in God's own self, in the winding up scene of the last dispensation, is that all things pertaining to that dispensation should be conducted precisely in accordance with the preceding dispensations. Therefore, he set the ordinances to be the same forever and ever. The prophet evidently understood that some things are essential and cannot be changed, while other things are variable. Narrative accompanying a ritual may vary, for example, adapting itself to the dynamic architecture of the temple. It is therefore correct to say that Joseph Smith promoted an essentialistic approach to ritual, distinguishing between essential characteristics and ones that were basically decoration. Yet it leaves open the question of what the essential characteristics are. I believe Joseph Smith would say that our task is to explore the heights and depths of knowledge available to us, and the more knowledge we gather, the closer we will be to understanding what is the same yesterday, today, and forever.